0: Well, friends, welcome back to our study in Ecclesiastes. It's the second of this series, and we won't pick this back up again until after the new year. Now, last week, we focused very intently, some may think too much, on the importance of Solomonic authorship when it comes to this letter. Be sure and listen to that if you have not. If you missed last week, be sure to go back. You can catch it on YouTube. Today, we're going to cover the motto and the repeating phrase of this book, And then, like I mentioned, we won't pick this back up until after the new year. So it is going to leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger today. But I pray that that brings about an anticipation to continue this series next year. So to begin, let's become familiar with the key word, the key phrase, and the key passage here in Ecclesiastes. Now the word vanity is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes, 78 times total in the Old Testament. All but one chapter of Ecclesiastes uses this term. Now, in an English dictionary, vanity would be defined as the quality of having no value or significance as a result of being futile or insubstantial or absurd or incomprehensible. Meanwhile, a biblical dictionary would note that our English word for vanity embraces a very wide semantic range and can carry connotations such as frustration, futility, unreality, insubstantiality. Did you know that was a word? Emptiness and vain glory. So there is a distinction on the word vanity from a biblical understanding as compared to simply a semantic or word studied. Now today, we are going to seek to understand vanity from the standpoint of Ecclesiastes. Now it is going to take time to get to that key passage uh, in chapter seven. Sorry, I clicked forward. Can you go back for me? I don't know how to use... I know there's a button, but I'm scared of it. It's gonna take... It's a reality, these clickers. It's gonna take time to get to chapter seven because we're barely going to cover through verse 11 of chapter one today. Uh, but note that the tone of the book is going to shift, and it will be key to... Uh, it, chapter seven will be the key to understanding the whole book. So there's this delayed satisfaction that you're gonna have to wait for. Now, in thinking about vanity... I want you to think about vapor. You know that when you you go outside and it's really cold and you breathe out and you can see your breath. I know it's not that cold here, but some of you know what that's like. It's that steam that comes up from a pot of boiling water. You can't grasp it, but you see it and you know that it's there. Now, Even better, think about soap bubbles. One second, you have these bubbles and there's so much fun, right? They float, they feel weightless. Some of them are multicolored. There's no burden to holding soap bubbles. They're enjoyable while they're with you and then they disappear and they're gone. And so is the fun. Friends, this life under the sun is soap bubbles, vanity, futility, vapor, soap bubbles full of joy and gladness, one second. And just when you think you've grasped it, poof, it's disappeared. For the person who has their mind set on earthly and worldly things, set on the materialism of this world, life under the sun is the ultimate vanity. Soap bubbles, beautiful and fun, one second, gone the next. At our members' communion service last week, Pastor Jeff reminded us to live life backward. And to know the end means that we then live in light of what is to come. Now, funnily enough, there's a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backward. And David Gibson opens his commentary with these words. I'm going to die. By the time you read these lines, I may even be dead. It's not that I have a virulent disease or a terminal illness. A doctor has not pronounced on how I'm going to die. I don't know when I will die. I just know I will. I'm going to die and so are you. But here's why I wrote this book. I am ready to die. Now in his introduction, Gibson continues to explain that thought, offering the reader an encouragement that a proper perspective on death provides the true perspective of life. He tells the reader that living in light of your death helps you to live wisely, freely, and generously. That this perspective will help you to have a big heart and open hands and to cherish the small things of life in deep and profound ways. He said Ecclesiastes has taught him this. Further pushing his point, he says, left to our own devices, we tend to live life forward. One day follows another and weeks turn into months and months into years. We do not know the future, but we plan and hope and dream of where we'll be and what we'd be like to be doing and whom we might be with. We live forward. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and to work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives, and to think about them from the perspective of the end. He says it is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we're heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions, and our strongest desires. Then he says this, I wanna persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. So friends, with all of that in view, are you interested in what God, through Solomon, has to say about life and death and everything in between? Now, this won't be an easy journey. It's not a simple book with a simple structure. I mentioned that last week. There is a distinction between wisdom and intellect. Some people make this harsh line between the two, but I think it's fair to say that one of the most able minds, both wise and intellectual, one of the most able minds of God's creation penned this work for us. Therefore, it is going to take time to comprehend the structure of the book, to get the steady grasp of the lay of the land in Ecclesiastes. I can assure you this, though. The journey towards wisdom through the experiences of Solomon will provide you with innumerable blessings because it'll challenge you to think about life deeply and humbly, and it will challenge the decisions that you make every single day. So with all of that in view, let's begin to chart the course. By correctly placing Solomon as the author, we're able to have a clear view of this book and its purpose. The purpose of Ecclesiastes, to warn young people of the vanity of life apart from God to exhort them to fear and obey him by summarizing painful lessons learned through a failed pursuit of success apart from the revealed wisdom of God. A shorter way to say that, to confront the materialistic mind. So what we see is temporary. God's kingdom is eternal. Solomon, as the preacher, is challenging both the secular unbeliever and the worldly believer to come to the end of their materialistic cosmology and outlook on life. I used cosmology last week, I didn't explain it, but let me say it simply. Cosmology is simply the understanding of the universe as an organized, structured entity. And everyone has a cosmology, whether they call it one or not. It's how we look at the universe. Now, everything is indeed vanity for the one who trusts in this world or their own self, but all is not vanity for the one who fears God and obeys his commands. Faithfully studying this book will help the reader to make sense of this life, but only from a perspective of acknowledging God as the creator and sustainer of all things. Now, for a Christian wrestling with hopelessness or discouragement, this book can help direct your heart to look beyond circumstances to see the God who is over all circumstances and over the entire world. Now, the simplest structure that we can provide to this book is within three major themes. In chapter one, verses one through 11, you have the problem that all is vanity. In chapter, the remaining of chapter one and all the way through chapter six, you have the proof that all is vanity. And finally, as a good Baptist, we finish out our alliteration. From chapters seven to 12, we have the prescription for living with vanity. So as you can see, today we're gonna focus on the problem that all is vanity. Now, if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We'll be focusing on verses 2 through 11 today. Verse 2 is the motto of this book, while verses 3 through 11 set the stage for the thought and offers several examples of observed phenomena in the world. All of them seem to underscore a sense of weariness, revolving door of circumstances that provide a ton of repetitiveness and lack of remembrance. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Going toward the south and circling toward the north, the wind goes circling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers go into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers go, there they continually go. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It is new. Already it has been for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the later things which will be. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Please be seated. Now, as you can see from the text, there is a veiled wisdom contained in these words. God is making a point here and As we noted with the author, it is not the venting of an exasperated old man. Rather, this is the proclamation of the problem that all people face. Everything repeats. Nothing is new. We come, we go, and what is the point of our existence? This line of questioning, and really this whole book, makes us wrestle with the reality that everything is not as clean and tidy as our world suggests. Sure, it would be easy to live by phrases like carpe diem, follow your dreams, you do you, or the more modern version, YOLO, you only live once. Now those phrases encourage people to live like ostriches with their heads buried in the sand, ignoring the reality of the pursuit of vain ambitions. Now worldly thinking, it pushes us toward pretending that everything will be okay. We can achieve anything we want. The doctors will always find a way to fix the problem. But what about when we can't achieve what we want? What happens when the doctors can't fix the problem? See, living in such an imaginary world when things are going well, it lulls us into a lack of preparation for the hardships that will surely come. Like the frog that doesn't realize the temperature in the pot is slowly rising until it's too late, So it is with a worldly cosmology that focuses on what we see rather than what is true. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And when it's too late, after we've accepted such foolishness as wisdom, we find ourselves in the quicksand of life, stuck and unable to free ourselves from the muck and the mire that we unwittingly and yet willingly wandered into. So we need the jolt that is Ecclesiastes to wake us up to stop pretending that life is okay and to begin to consider the foolishness in our approach to life. In in chapter one, verse two, we have the motto of the book, all is vanity. Here today, gone tomorrow, futility. Now this will echo throughout the book and it emphasizes a key point here in the text. A person can have all the riches and all the experience that life has and it's still like chasing soap bubbles. Nothing in the created world was intended to bring lasting joy or ultimate meaning to life. This life is just a breath. Take a look at Psalm 39. You'll see another description of this vain life. It's on the screen for you. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you, Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. Now I understand vanity, I under, uh, underlined vanity in vain on the screen. Those are both represented by the same Hebrew word, habel which is often translated as breath. And some of your translations may actually have it represented in your Bible that way. Our days, our life, can be measured by a breath or really, as the psalmist says, a few hand breaths. If you don't mind doing this exercise with me, I think it's helpful because the author intended this. Take a look at your hands. Take a look at the breadth of your hands, how wide they can reach, how far they can grasp. He says, our life is like a few of these. Now, when you think about the expanse of the universe, you think about the expanse of this world, you think about the expanse of this country, the expanse of this town, the expanse of even this room, your life is just this. Not even just hand breaths, a breath. Now, before an almighty and eternal God, what are we? Psalm 144 says this, Yahweh, what is man that you know him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. And the Hebrew word there is chabel. His days are like a passing shadow. Vanity, a breath. Now think again about that breathing out when you're standing outside in the cold and you can see your breath. It's very real but then it vanishes quickly. It comes and it goes, and aside from your memory of having seen it, it leaves without any permanent impact or lasting impression. Can you tell the difference between your breaths? So it is with us. We were there, and then we weren't. Time flies the older you get, does it not? You hear grandparents or older folks say, it's like they blinked. And now they're here in an old person's body. Where did the gray come from? We're born, we live, we die, and it all happens so fast. Proverbs 31 says this about charm and beauty. It says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. The other word you can use there is beauty is vanity. Beauty is vain. Beauty is a breath, habel. A famous person once said, the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich and then becoming poor. Ecclesiastes forces us to meditate on what it means for our lives to be like a breath, a whisper in the wind, hear one minute and carried away the next. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. We can't grab the smoke and put it in our pocket. You don't get to keep the soap bubbles for long. It's real, it's tangible, but every time you try to get near it, your very attempt pushes it away to disappear as if it would have lasted longer had you not even tried in the first place. And isn't life like that sometimes? We try to control the world around us to grasp it, to understand it. And the more we try, the more it seems to elude us. We never have the umbrella on rainy days. It's supposed to rain this week, just FYI. The other line at the market or the other freeway lane always seems to be moving faster. Sometimes we feel low and we can't identify the cause. People we love die young and wicked dictators live long in prosperity. Think about our lives. We can pour our whole lives into an endeavor and it may succeed or it may fail. You don't know how secure really is your job. How healthy will you be? What's going to happen with home prices and interest rates? If anyone figures that out, let me know. What will your life be like in 10 years? Have you ever built a sandcastle on the beach? Now I remember when Eden was little, we brought some toys to the beach and we were helping her build this sand castle. So first you got you got those buckets, you got to fill them up. You make the spires and the turrets, you build the walls. Don't forget the moat, right? Don't forget. Any of you moat builders out there? Come on. Don't forget the moat. Add shells for decoration. If you find a small crab, maybe you put it in there as the guardian. Now we made this castle many years ago. We had fun doing it. But then what happens? You should have seen her surprise, trying to figure out in your young mind to work out why all of the work we had done was suddenly and unceremoniously reduced to a lump of sand simply by the tide. How long do sand castles last? How much control do we have over the sand castles that we construct? We build for a short time. And inevitably, we are subject to forces beyond our control. That's what our lives are like. And instead of sand and sea, the Bible uses grass and wind to make this point. Psalm 103 says this, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flowers. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. This is a harsh reality, but it's true, and we all know it, even when we pretend otherwise. When we pretend that our lives are built with granite rather than with sand. We think that we make a lasting difference with our work or our contributions. And then Ecclesiastes is that tide that washes upon our sandcastles, confronting us with the reality and a difficult question. Let's take a look at the text here in chapter one, verse three. I think I'm ahead of a slide. We're not there. I don't have the slide. Pretend it's there. (laughs) Take a look at the text. Chapter one, verse three says this. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? This question is the key to understanding the opening of this book, and it aims to help us reflect on the complex realities of the world as we see it. Consistently, wisdom literature will ask us to to consider what it means to fear Yahweh in the world that Yahweh has made. What does it mean to fear him in his created order? Now, here's a quote from Gibson, who I mentioned earlier. He says this, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a world that God made and called good, yet which also has gone so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. Now in that opening question of verse three, what follows then through verse 11, Solomon the preacher then is calling us to reflect on our experiences in the world. He beckons you, look at your life, look at the world around you and ask, what do your observations tell you about life in general? How do you make sense of it? The pithy sayings and proverbs, the riddles and provocative questions, the prose and poetry that wisdom literature brings, they all force us to look at life through a different angle. As one commentator noted, he said, wisdom literature aims to wound us from behind like a punch in the back, hitting us when we don't see it coming. So think about your answer to the question that he poses in verse three. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun? Now it seems as if Solomon wants the reader to answer to respond by saying nothing. Man has no advantage and nothing to gain at all in all his labors. From a life full of hard labor under the sun in this imperfect world we gain nothing. We have nothing in the end to show for it. As the curse is found in Genesis 3:19, we are dust and to dust we return. What is your surplus at the end of this life? What will you leave behind that will count as an enduring monument to all of your effort? Solomon, the preacher, gives an answer to this question by painting a stark picture, and he uses the natural world as an example. He paints the picture of humankind's place in the universe by providing these examples from the natural world. So we see the sun in verse 5, the wind in verse 6, the rivers and the sea in verse 7, and all of that underscores what he says in verse a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth stands forever. What do we leave behind after all of our toil? You leave the earth you used to stand on still spinning just like it did before you, just like it will after you. Our lives come and go. Even your children and children's children are part of the generations who come and go. Every generation comes and go and leaves behind a universe that carries on just as it did before them. Listen to Solomon's descriptions of the repetitiveness of life displayed in the natural world. Verses 5 through 7, he says this, Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again, going toward the south, circling toward the north. The wind goes circling along, and on its circular course, the wind returns." All the rivers go into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers go, there they continually go. Everything goes round and round. Rinse and repeat. The sun rises and sets and rises again. What's been done will be done again. The present will soon be the past. Ecclesiastes 1.8 then says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to speak of it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Now, as you look at verse 8, I want you to consider a special relationship between these three components of speaking, seeing, and hearing, in compared to the sun, the wind, and water. Now, these are to be understood as part of the human experience or a threefold pattern that we see here in contrast So you have the sun, wind, and water juxtaposed against speaking, seeing, and hearing. Think about this. The sun just chases its tail. The wind goes north and south and comes back again. Streams flow to the sea. The water evaporates, comes down as rain, forms more streams, flow into the sea. Thus the sea is constantly being filled and yet never full. And humankind is no different. People are as insatiable as the sea. Just as water pours into the sea without filling it, so the things of this world pour into humans via their eyes and their ears and back out their mouths and yet never reaches the point of satisfaction. Now, if creation does not gain a thing from its toil, from the rising and setting of the sun to the circular movement of the wind, the constant filling of ocean from streams and never truly fill it, if creation gains nothing from all its toil, why should humans find an advantage? or find gain. Think of how weary it is to observe constant motion without ever realizing lasting achievement. The eye can always take in more. The ear never becomes so full as to not accept sound from the outside world. Humans never reach the point of saying, all right, that's it, I'm full. Seen it all, said it all, heard it all. We never get to the point of saying, I've given and taken all that I can. Solomon points out that humans are just as cyclical and linear as the natural world. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. That's what verse nine says. As much as we all long to have something break this repetitive cycle, to have something truly new and significant to say or to see or to hear, there's nothing. All the things that we see and hear, they've already been and gone. They're simply rolling around again. Now you might say, but but Adam, what about technology? Surely that is something new. Now look, your phone may appear to be revolutionary, but it is simply an iteration of fundamental aspects of communication that have existed for thousands of years. It seems new because that's marketing, but it is in fact old. Take Google Maps, for example. Fundamentally, it's the same as the charts that Magellan drafted. Magellan wasn't the first to make a map. Such things existed for thousands of years. Things that we see as a revolution have actually been seen before. As special as the moon landing was, it still represents a form of adventure and engineering and exploration that has been with humans since we've walked the earth. And space travel is a great example of Solomon's point here. When he says that nothing is new, he's not saying that no new things are ever created. But space travel, it's distinct from passenger planes, right? Distinct from helicopters, distinct from cars and boats. But the concept of transportation is not new, And Solomon means to point out that there's nothing new that will break the cycle and satisfy us. Once we've explored our solar system, what's next? The galaxy beyond. And then what? It's never enough. Verse 10 says, is there anything of which one might say? See this, it is new. Already it has been for ages, which were before us. Even with all our progresses, there is nothing new. Remember the question in verse three, and it asks, is there any advantage? Is there anything to gain from all our toil under the sun? And consider this, there is never any surplus, no extra to be had at the end of our toil. We're never full enough to have something left over at the end of our days. The universe itself is cyclical. Everything comes and goes. Verse 11 says this, there's no remembrance of earlier things, And also of the later things, which will be, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So what is the point with all the toil to find or to leave something new? Can't be done. Why work your fingers to the bone when you know that the world will go on impervious to what you've done and it won't remember you anyway? The world won't even remember the children we're yet to have the accomplishments that we are yet to achieve, there will be no remembrance. Thus, Solomon answers his question from verse three. There is no advantage to be had, no gain in all of our toil. So vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his labor in which he labors under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, it's one that recurs many times throughout this book. Some commentators have taken that phrase, under the sun, to mean life apart from God. And while it's true, life apart from God is absolutely meaningless. Here in chapter one, we're confronted with reality, not just what it looks like for secular people to have their thoughts. We know that life in Christ presents us with a different angle to view life, But as the preacher here in Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon is actually calling us to look at the world, to look at this age in reality. Often throughout the Old Testament, the sun marks time. So I would say the phrase under the sun could be better understood as this age, this time period, this side of eternity since creation of this world. Under the sun could be another way of saying as long as this earth lasts. So being a Christ follower doesn't change the repeating pattern of this age. Being a Christian doesn't change the rising or the setting of the sun, the motion of the wind, or the streams that never fill the oceans. But as Christians, we should be the first ones to admit that this planned obsolescence is true. We need to be the first ones to stop pretending that this world is not repetitive. Now, this might not make complete sense yet, but Solomon is carefully laying the foundation for the main argument of his book. And by the end of our journey through Ecclesiastes, we're gonna see clearly that living life backwards, preparing for death, will prepare us to truly live. Let the reality of death, the reality of your death, sink deeply through your skin and through your bones to your heart. We will quickly disappear from this earth. So if we're not here forever, we need to consider how to live during this momentary breath of life. Now we need the whole book of Ecclesiastes to explain it fully. The argument given by Solomon, it is cumulative and builds upon itself. So he's painting a canvas. Some of you like Bob Ross, right? Like a Bob Ross painting, you need to wait patiently. You need to wait for the whole picture to come into view. In these opening verses of chapter one, Solomon has brought the problem to our doorstep. All is vanity. We will die. This is the cycle, and nothing we can do will change the inevitable outcome of our lives. We are not God. We are not in control. We are not sovereign. But we try to avoid that reality by playing the game of let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs, we won't experience the tedium and ordinariness of a life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house or emigrate to a red state with four seasons, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week will be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend that we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Let's just pretend. Friends, we long for change in a world full of permanent repetition. We dream of breaking the cycle, yet we also long for permanence in a world full of constant change. We try to make ourselves permanent when we were never meant to be, and we try to control the world when it was not meant to be controlled by us. The seasons, the cycles of this world, they come and go. They're content to keep doing so, yet we toil to make believe, to pretend that it will be different for us. So Ecclesiastes hits us in our blind spot. It tells us to stop playing let's pretend and to let history and the created world teach us something. We're not intended to avoid this repetition. Rather, we need to learn to live in light of this repetition. We need to stop thinking that new or novelty will bring meaning and happiness and satisfaction. This material world doesn't have what we truly need. Any of you read the screw tape letters? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay, some of you raise your hand. Good job. Now you have this fantastical world from C.S. Lewis. There's a senior devil or demon named Screwtape and he's instructing his nephew, the junior devil named Wormwood. And they're trying to help him get people to turn away from the enemy. Who's the enemy? God is. Regarding humanity's constant desire to experience something new, at one point Screwtape instructs Wormwood and he makes note that the horror of the same old thing is one of their most valuable tactics. Essentially, Screwtape points out that man's fear of keeping things the same and his intense desire for newness of breaking the cycle produces all kinds of evil. He mentions things like new heresies come out, that people offer terrible new ideas as counsel. We named some of them, Carpe Diem, YOLO, even breaking up marriages, when one spouse gets discontent and wants something new. God has made both change and newness pleasurable to humans. Within the rhythms of life, God has made us to enjoy the balance of change and constancy. The change of the weather from the beating summer sun to the crisp mornings of fall and winter feel all at once new and yet familiar again. And here is Solomon's point in asking the question about advantage and explaining vanity when we're unsatisfied with the rhythmical repetition of our lives, it is because we're pretending that life should be different. We want infinite change to gain something in our toil, to escape the confines of our ordinary existence and arrive in a world where there is somehow no more repetition and yet also has permanence. We search and we search For something new under the sun trying to find a way for gain but it is just not possible just when you've made a decisive change in your life and circumstances you're going to want to change again whatever momentary gain that you've received will soon be lost it will be gone from this earth as the morning dew vanishes with the rising sun and so will you when we're all dead and gone a hundred years after our death chances are no one will ever know that you lived. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, if this sounds discouraging, keep with me on this journey. There's a lot to learn from Solomon through Ecclesiastes. But if you hear all of this and you get that funny, wry smile to work its way across your face as you're wondering... So what are you getting at? Then be encouraged. You're well on the journey toward wisdom. Solomon is gonna teach us what we should expect out of this life and what we shouldn't. He's not simply saying there is no gain or advantage in our toil and chasing after wind, but he's gonna show us we shouldn't chase it in the first place. There is no advantage to be found under this sun. And that's the point. Now, as we close, let me underscore this. We should seek to understand Ecclesiastes in light of when it was written and to whom it was written. Jesus Christ is not mentioned here. And though we know that he is the word made flesh, these words of Solomon, the preacher, purposefully exclude him. Now we have the advantage of knowing Emmanuel, the Messiah, Jesus, but there was still a shadow of hope in the Old Testament for our Old Testament saints. And we should learn this lesson about wisdom from the root that we are grafted into. Sometimes it is good to be left with a sense of longing. It is good to be left without resolution, wanting that full and final redemption that can only come at the end of this age. Now, with all this in mind, We can still ask ourselves hard questions in light of eternity and in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, here are some questions for you to ponder. Have you been placing your hope in something new? Has there been a grasping at wind or a vain attempt that you've pursued recently? Have you been looking to something under the sun? to bring you lasting purpose or pleasure? How does thinking about death challenge you to live? How does what you know about the gospel, about eternal hope in Christ, about redemption, fit with what you've heard from Solomon and Ecclesiastes this morning? I want you to think about these questions, about the meaning of vanity for just a moment. I'll give you quiet time and then I'll close us in prayer as we continue to orient our hearts to praise God for hope in Christ. God, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given Solomon. Thank you for a well-placed punch in the back to bring us to think about hard and real things. Thank you for bringing to bear The reality of us wanting to change things and yet also wanting things to remain the same. Help us to think rightly about these things. God, help us to convict us of pride. When we think that we should be in control of this world and the things that occur, convict us of our arrogance before you. God, please humble us as we think about the changing of the seasons about New Year's resolutions, about the familiar Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons. Help us to think humbly about the nature of the cycle, the nature of new, the nature of repetition. God, help us to appreciate the simple pleasures. Help us to not demand our own way and expectations, even for holiday celebrations. Help us remember what we truly deserve and yet what we've been given. God, thank you for using Solomon to help us think about the end of our life. We are blessed to have wisdom set before us as we consider the end of our days. God, give us grace to better understand the nature of this life under this earthly sun and help us to grow in gratitude and appreciation for the eternal life that can only be provided through your eternal son, Jesus Christ. May we truly value the here and now blessings that you have given to us, but may we infinitely value the hope of the Christian reserved for the believer who trusts Emmanuel, Christ Jesus, to the end.